And those of you who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is from John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, as, uh, as we've already kind of been reflecting together as uh, a congregation this morning, uh, we acknowledge before you that we were meant to know you, uh, that we were meant to commune with you. And Lord, my prayer is that as we hear your word together, as we look 
more closely at Jesus, that you would draw us to yourself, that we might drink the living water that you have for us and never be thirsty again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For our entire lives, from the moment of our first breath, one of our deepest needs, one of our deepest longings is for connection. I mean, we, we see this from the very beginning. When, when a baby is born and they're crying, what's the first thing the baby needs? To be held. And in that moment, to feel the warmth of the embrace of his father or his mother. And then as parents, we know there's this beautiful moment when maybe six to eight weeks in, suddenly the baby looks at us and smiles. And in that smile, we realize, oh, you do see us. Oh, you do like us. And there's this connection that's even more deeply formed. And, and over these initial months, there is this bond being formed where there's this kind of unspoken commitment where the parents say, I am your father and I am your mother and we, we love you. And the child, before they even have words, say, and I am your child, and I love you. That connection is so much a part of who we are, not only as infants, but for the rest of our lives. We, we need human connection. When we get a little bit older, we, we start longing for a different kind of connection, for, for friendship, which is different in that there's a choice that's being made. And do you remember your first really good friend? Not, not just the one that you would kind of play in the general vicinity of in, in preschool, but, but someone who actually would knock on your door and ask if you could come out and play, and you knew they wanted to do stuff with you, and you wanted to do stuff with them, and there was a, a choice being made at some point, maybe whether you actually said it or not, there was this kind of unspoken agreement. We are friends, which means we are committed to each other. There is something powerful about that. There's a connection that's formed. We need connection. When we get older, when we hit adolescence, we start longing for a different kind of personal connection. We have our first crush. Or then maybe sometime after that, we find that the person that we like likes us back, and that just feels spectacular. And then eventually, maybe something will form over years. We, ha we get in a dating relationship, and, and maybe at least sometimes we, we get into this mature relationship where we make public vows to each other. I will be your husband, and I give myself to you. I will be your wife, and I give myself to you. And in the midst of all the things, the wedding, the romance, the very heart of what is going on is, is connection. It's personal connection. Because that's, that's what we need. Whatever form we're talking about, parent, child, friendship, husband and wife, at the very heart of it is this desire to be connected to someone so that we give ourselves in love to that person and they delight in that gift and they give themselves back to us in love and commitment and we delight in that. And that connection is so fundamental to what it means to be human. And I would, I would suggest that these human relationships, each in and of themselves important, also are given to us to point beyond themselves to a deeper connection that is fundamental to who we are, the connection that we were designed to have between God and us. A connection that in some ways is, is similar. Of course, it has its own shape. Every relationship is shaped by the dynamic, but but in this relationship as well, it's about giving, where, where God 
gives himself to us saying, I will be your God, I will give you what you need, I will protect you, I will provide for you. And we give ourselves back to God saying, I will be yours, I will worship you, I give myself to you. And he delights in our gifts. That is something that is fundamental to what we were made for. Personal connection with God. So this morning, the question that we are asking as we are concluding our Explore God series is one related to this very topic. Can I know God personally? And what we're really asking is, is the thing that I just described, that personal connection between God and us, is that possible? Is that realistic? Can I expect to have a personal connection with the creator of the universe? And I, as I've thought about this, I think this is probably of the seven weeks that we've talked about, the one that is the most challenging to be convinced about. So if you think about what we've, we've thought about before, is, is God real? Is the Bible reliable? Even is Jesus the Son of God? These are all, in some ways, objective questions. They are, in some ways, facts that we can deal with. And, and if you look at, as we've said, look at different statistics, most people in America would, would believe in some sort of personal God, would believe that the Bible should be taken seriously, would even believe more than half would say that Jesus is in some ways God. But, but when we're talking about can you know God personally, that's a different kind of question. Sure, I know that it's almost cliche sometimes for people to say something like, smile, God loves you. But I wonder how often when people are saying that or when they're hearing that, whether we're really actually connecting it to, to reality, where we're actually thinking about the real God knowing the real us and loving us in a very real way. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves Many of us struggle to believe that, that any people know the real us and love the real us. So often we find ourselves kind of trying to prove ourselves to others to get them to think highly of us. We, we hide certain aspects of ourselves because we don't want people to see that because we believe if they did, well, mm. and, and so the idea that God that not, just a, not just another human being, but that God, the, the, the one who spoke the world into existence, would love us, would have a personal relationship with us. I mean, think about it. Why would God even be interested in you? I mean, why would the one who oversees the explosion of stars into supernovas be interested in a personal relationship with you? And, and, and why, especially if you think about it, God knows everything, right? Which means he knows everything about you. Is, is it even possible? Is it even something that God is remotely interested in to, to be personally, intimately connected to you? Uh, the question that, that, that we're posing is, does God want you? And the remarkable answer in Scripture is yes. Yes, that the God of the universe actually, not because he needs 
us. He doesn't need us, but because He loves you, wants to be intimately connected to you, where He gives Himself to you and you give yourself to Him and there is joy. And that is one of the hardest things to believe, even as it is written in every page of Scripture. And it's what I hope for us to see more clearly as we look at this morning's passage, because I believe that that is the very heart of this passage, that, that God wants you. And we see it in an interaction between Jesus and a woman. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the most kind of modest stories in the Bible. There's no miracles. There's not large crowds. It's, it's just a simple conversation, but there is something so significant about what takes place here, and that's why John records it for us. So to understand what's going on in the passage that was just read, it's first valuable to kind of just get a little bit of sense of this woman that is speaking with Jesus. We, we learn a few things from what John tells us. One of them is that she's a Samaritan, which means from the perspective of, of the people of God, she's an outsider. Samaritans were viewed by Jews as, as traitors. They had abandoned a good portion of the Old Testament Scripture, and they had also decided that even though God said, you were going to worship me on this mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, they were going to worship God on a different mountain. They were seen as heretics. They were not liked. As John actually tells us, Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. But, but there's more to know about this woman than that. It's not just that she's an outsider according to God's people. She's an outsider even within her own people. There's a detail that's easy to miss. It talks about how it's the sixth hour. That's noon. The woman is coming out to the water in the hottest part of the day. Now, as you know, everyone in that town would have to come out to the well. There's no plumbing. It was actually a fairly social thing because people would usually come at the same time of the day, either the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, because that makes sense. This is hot, sweaty work otherwise. The only reason someone would come at noon is if they were wanting to avoid everyone else. We learned something else about this woman. As Jesus is speaking to this woman, Jesus tells her point blank, you have had five husbands, and the person that you're with right now is not your husband at all. Now, if you've heard this story before, oftentimes I think we can misunderstand the significance of this. As, as think about it, it's like, oh, wow, this woman clearly has done lots of bad things, but that's not the point here. The point here is that she's been rejected. There's only one person in a marriage in that day that could actually file for divorce, and that was always the husband. And it was easy. They basically had to say, I don't want you anymore. So can you imagine what it would be to be that woman, having made these vows, I will be your wife, I give myself to you, and in a matter of time, the husband's saying, I don't want you. Not just once, but twice. I don't want you. Another one, I don't want you. Another one, I don't want you. I don't want you. How would you feel about yourself by the end of this? She feels so worthless that she is now willing to be taken advantage of and doesn't even expect someone to make a commitment. As long as this man kind of loves me, that's fine. And so you can understand why she is going by herself. She would be the talk of the town. Everyone would be like, hey, what's wrong with this woman? She couldn't handle it anymore. She would have to isolate herself. She's an outcast even amongst her own people who are an outcast people. I've heard in, in our day, sometimes people talk about someone as being damaged goods. Have you ever heard that? I, I really don't like that. It's so, it's so patronizing and so misunderstanding, but I think that's probably how people spoke of this woman. She's damaged goods. What's wrong with her? I remember there's uh, an illustration that's been used from time to time in the youth groups 
where a youth pastor trying to help the youth group understand the importance of sexual purity will take this beautiful rose and we'll, we'll show it to everyone and then we'll hand it to the kids and say, each of you, grab the rose, touch the petals, and it's passed from one kid to another and after about 50 kids, he takes it back and of course the rose is now just wilted and ugly and terrible looking. And he feels like he's made his point. This is what happens when you're not sexually impure. And then he raises it up. Who wants this rose? The implication being, of course, no one. That's the Samaritan woman. That's how she views herself. That's how other people view her. She's damaged goods. Who wants this rose? Now, I'm spending some time on this because I actually think when we step back for a moment, many of us if we're honest, actually identify with this woman. Because many of us know what it is to feel like damaged goods. Maybe for you, there are things that have been said to you by a cruel parent who hasn't even realized how hard those words are in that moment, or by people in the schoolyard, or even by an abusive relationship, and those words are not just able to bounce off. It's not like sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. No, they hurt me, and now they are a part of me, and they are a part of you. You feel like damaged goods. Or maybe there is something that you have done or are doing that just fills you with shame. Maybe it's addiction to pornography. Maybe it's an abortion in your past. Maybe it's some kind of failure that continues to haunt you, and you just feel awful deep down. Or maybe for some of you, you know that from the outside everyone looks at you and you look like you have it together because you are really good at hiding and you know you are convinced that if people ever really saw you, they would turn away. Many of us know what it is to experience, to even tell ourselves we are damaged goods. We are like that wilted flower, and who wants that rose? And here's the thing that's so beautiful about this passage. There is such a clear answer, and the answer is Jesus. Jesus wants this rose. And we see it from the very first moment to the last. It begins by something subtly in verse 4. We're told that he had to pass through Samaria. So he's leaving the south Judea, going to Galilee. It says he has to pass through Samaria. Now that's actually, if people knew the situation, that's a confusing detail because he doesn't have to, not at least geographically speaking. In fact, Jews all the time would go around Samaria because they didn't want to have to go through that place. So when it's saying he has to do this, it's saying he has to do this not because he needs to geographically, but because he has a purpose, because he has a plan. He has to because he has decided he is going to meet this woman. So he gets to this well, this famous Jacob's well. He sends his disciples to go get food because they're hungry again. It's the middle of the day. He's hot. He's tired. He's, he's sitting by the well on his own, and he sees this this woman, this stranger that he has never met before coming out to the well. And in that moment, he does something scandalous. He talks to her. We've already talked a little bit about why it's scandalous because Jews don't associate with Samaritans, but it even goes more than that. 
In that day, if a man and a woman were alone with each other, no self-respecting people would talk to each other so that there's no wrong ideas that might be misunderstood in that moment. And what's more, especially if you are in this area, the well, because let me tell you about something about wells. In, in the first five books of the Bible, there is a consistent pattern. When a man and a woman meet at a well, they get married. So, so the first time Abraham is sending out a servant to find Isaac a wife, he meets the woman at the well. Guess what? That's the bride of Isaac. Jacob is running away and he goes to a well and guess who he meets? It's Rachel, his future wife. Moses, when he leaves Pharaoh, he meets Zipporah at a well and suddenly the wedding bells are ringing again and again. It's like wells are a match.com or an e-harmony of that day. And of course, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, both who very well knew those stories, would know that dynamic, and yet Jesus speaks to her. And so she's just kind of taken aback and basically says, what are you doing talking to me? And then Jesus begins to kind of move towards her in a certain way. He says, if you knew the gift of God, that's what this is all about. What Jesus is doing here is he is intent on giving her a gift from God, and everything follows from that. He says, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the woman doesn't really understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, you can almost sense this kind of eye roll. Like, uh, you don't have a bucket and this is a pretty great well, and I don't know what you're thinking, but I think I'm fine. Thank you very much. And so Jesus continues and kind of explains and kind of moves beyond kind of this initial statement. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So in, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision. It's a vision of the temple, the place of God's presence. And from the very heart of the temple where God is, water flows. There are these streams flowing from the temple. And wherever that water goes, whatever it touches becomes alive. It is living water in this vision, and that living water very clearly in this vision signifies the life-giving presence of God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He is saying to this woman, I have something greater for you than water. I, I want to give you the living presence of God. I have come to connect you to God that you might never be thirsty again. Now, the woman clearly still doesn't understand, but it's interesting. There is something about what Jesus has said that seems to have gotten under her skin. So she does what Jesus has wanted her to do from the beginning, and that is she asks him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus responds, go call your husband and come here. And it seems like he's changing the subject, but he's not. See, she's just asked that she might have this living water. 
And she doesn't even realize she's asking that she might have this deep, profound, intimate connection with God, but Jesus knows exactly what she needs. He knows that until she knows that she is known, she cannot experience this connection to God. See, as long as in our relationship before God, we feel like we need to hide things, as long as we feel like in prayer we need to pretend, as long as there's aspects that we never acknowledge before for God, you will never know what it means that the real God loves the real you. It needs to come to light. And, and that's exactly what happens here. When Jesus says, go call your husband, he is bringing her shame to light. Nervously, she answers, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Can you imagine, like, just the, 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 the process this woman is similarly going through? How does he know? He knows. How does he know? He doesn't know me. And then maybe even moving from there, he, he knows Why is he even talking to me? So she's on the back foot. She she doesn't even know what to do, and so she decides to try to quick move this to a safe topic. The fundamental disagreement, again, between the Jews and the Gentiles, was I mean, Jews and the Samaritans, was about mountains. So she decides, let's just throw this in to kind of get Jesus off the ascent. And so, you know, she says to him, Hey, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, Our father is worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Discuss. And I love, again and again, if you ever study just how Jesus is with conversation, he never gets thrown off. He never gets derailed. And it's like, and this is a very nerdy thing for me to say in the moment, but what else is new? It's kind of like in Star Wars. You know how sometimes like in Star Wars, like someone throws stuff at a Jedi and the Jedi just goes, and the thing is just kind of, that's what's happening here. This woman is throwing this debate and Jesus is like, you know, salvation is from the Jews. Your mountain is the wrong one, but that doesn't matter. Let me tell you what I want to tell you. And that's what he says immediately. He, he says, the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Yes, there's that mountain debate. The Jews are actually right about this. But let me tell you something. There's a new hour coming. There's a new hour where there's going to be a new way of connecting to God. A way not through a mountain, but through truth and through the Spirit. But notice especially one phrase. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Do you hear that? God is seeking. Jesus is saying, this is why I've come. I've come on behalf of God the Father, to seek you. A a couple chapters earlier, you have Jesus' first miracle. You might remember it's the changing of water to wine. And John calls it a sign because it points beyond itself to something bigger. In the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of a time when God's people and God will be reunited with each other in a beautiful relationship, and it will be like a wedding a wedding feast. And so in chapter 2, we see the time of the wedding feast is here. 
In chapter 3, John the Baptist, as he's talking about Jesus, speaks about how he is the best man, and the best man rejoices in the presence of the bridegroom, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And the question that we're supposed to be asking after chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, where's the bride? And the answer is here. The answer is here. As, As Jesus comes seeking worshipers, it is This woman who is rejected, who is damaged goods, who is the wilted flower, this is the bride that Jesus came for. Not not to to seek just an, an earthly marriage, that of course is a symbol, is a metaphor. He came to draw her to himself, to connect her to God, to invite her into this beautiful, delightful, fellowship. That's, that's what he's saying. If you knew the gift of God, that's what he's saying when he's talking about the living water. It's, I have come to bring you to God because he wants you. He is seeking you as a worshiper. The woman still doesn't understand, but it seems even more that Jesus has gotten under her skin because kind of wistfully, she says, I know that Messiah, which is just the Hebrew word for Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And this is not a change of subject. This is this conviction that maybe right now I'm an outsider, maybe the Samaritans are an outsider, but I believe that someone is coming who will give us the way back to God. And it's at that moment that all, all distance is removed, all confusion dissipates when Jesus says, I, the one who speak to you, am he. I know everything about you. I know your past. I know your shame. And I am the Messiah, and I've come for you. We were asking at the very beginning this question. Um, when we think of the greatness of God, and how big he is, and we think of who we are and how, how, how much baggage we carry, is it even possible that God would be interested in us? Is it even possible that God would want us? And I hope you see as you just step back for a moment and look at what we're seeing in this passage that there is a clear answer that the Son of God has come with a specific purpose, and he has come because he wants the rose. Because he wants this woman. He wants the person with damaged goods, the person with baggage. He wants people like you and like me because the Father is seeking worshipers. Here's the most extraordinary truth that I can understand in the Scriptures. God wants you. God wants me, and and God wants you, 
He, he wants us to experience a relationship so intimate that sometimes it's described as a relationship between a husband and a bride. Sometimes it's described as a relationship between a father and his child. Sometimes it's just spoken of as a God and his worshipers. And, and the person he wants is not some phony, fake version of you that you feel like you have to put on. He knows the real you, and he wants you. When Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman about an hour that's coming, he's not just speaking about a certain time. And John, again and again, when he speaks of the hour, he's speaking of something very specific, and that is the cross. What he's saying in a way that, of course, the Samaritan woman would understand is that he has come with the intent of going to the cross so that through the cross he would pave a way so that we can be connected to God. That at the cross, he removes our shame at the cross. He removes our baggage, our sin, our guilt. All of it is dealt with in his death. So that now we don't have to worry about how to come to God. We come to God through Jesus, who is the truth. By the power of the Spirit. What I'm trying to tell you here is that the Son of God wants you so much that he laid down his life to draw you to himself. That, that our God, because Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. That our God desires you to experience the joy of his love flowing through you like streams of living water giving you life and to experience the joy of giving yourself back to him and knowing that as you give yourself to him in worship, as flawed as you are, he smiles and is filled with joy at you. Our God desires you to experience that connection, that personal connection to him. That is what we were made for, and that is what our God miraculously, stupendously wants. Perhaps some of you this morning um, are, are feeling in some ways like the Samaritan woman. You, you know of God, but you do not feel in any way connected to him. And, and here's the thing, actually, the Bible tells us that when we're reading Scripture, something supernatural takes place. It's not just that we're reading things that God once said. It actually says that as we contemplate Scripture together, we actually hear God speaking to us. There is a real sense that right now, in the same way that Jesus had come to the Samaritan woman, He has come to us right now, and He is speaking to you. And He is saying to you, if you only knew the one speaking to you, you would know that he has eternal living water that you might never thirst again. And, and he is inviting you in this moment with love, knowing exactly who you are, to say to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty again. Wherever we stand, whether we have come to recognize beyond our ability to understand or not that, that God wants us, I would invite us even now to respond in prayer. There is nothing more freeing than knowing that God sees us fully and yet loves us completely. 
So I invite you now to, to open your heart before God in confession and prayer to draw near to Him and experience the reality that He loves you. We're going to spend some time in silent prayer, and then in a few minutes I will lead us in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father, in the same way that your son saw completely through the Samaritan woman, we realize that you see completely through us, that there is nothing that we can hide from you. Lord, you know what each of us are carrying, the things about ourselves that are ugly, the aspects of even this past week that we are ashamed of, and even the parts that we know we should be ashamed of but aren't yet. Lord, we acknowledge all of our sin before you. We acknowledge that we are not worthy to be loved by you. And yet, Father, we trust what your word says. Lord, I ask that you would convince our hearts more fully of the fact that you love us, that you want us, that in Christ you have forgiven us. Lord, would you please draw us ever nearer to you that more and more we might commune with you as those who worship you and give ourselves to you in love, knowing your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5 reminds us of this glorious truth. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to God.